When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Is it properly blacked out with my green screen or you can see any edges? No, you're all black. It's all black in the background. Okay. Okay. Got to gotta fit the brand. <laughs> <laughs> and I got to match your, your, your really cool shirt you got there. Oh, thanks, buddy. Yeah, I can send you one. If you text me your uh, address and I'll mail you. I'd be honored. I'll send you one in the mail. That'd be uh, fantastic. From the bottom, make no half stepping. I'm the dog. I made it through so they don't ask questions. Long Beach and it ain't no half repping. Okay, let's go. Angelo Robles is the host of the Angelo Robles podcast. He is the founder and CEO of the Family Office Association, which is among the world's largest and most exclusive global membership organizations dedicated to families of exceptional success and their family offices. He has a podcast on YouTube and Apple Podcasts. Be sure and follow him on Instagram as well at Angelo Robles Meta. Angelo, thanks for making time for me today, my friend. Scott, it's such a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be on. Angelo, one of my favorite Instagram posts uh, that you made in March was called Advice to Young Men. And I'd love to start this conversation with you going through what you think young investors, both men and women, need to do to elevate themselves, not only on a financial level? Wow, you ask a question that's probably going to end up getting us in trouble, or at least me in trouble. <laughs> you just asked a question, you can't get in trouble. Where do I even start? It's very different than family offices and crypto. So I'm going to answer your question broadly, and then feel free to narrow down. I'm not a kid. I've been around a long, long time. I'm well-traveled, I've been fortunate, and I've been lucky in my career, mainly due to having great people around me that do the heavy lifting. Uh, but I'm, I think I'm pretty good at observing. And given that I've been around a long time, I have noticed women have absolutely picked up their game. Look at the number of people entering and graduating college by ratio of male to female. It's not even close. Women are completely dominating. They're dominating in the educational sphere. And I would say, uh, I'll use today as an example. They're dominating, I would say, in their physical prowess as well. Uh, going to the gym 10 years ago, rarely would I have seen a woman moving weight that would like, wow, that gets attention. Now you go to any CrossFit, it's, it's unusual not to see multiple that could deadlift 225, Scott, uh, squat 225. Uh, so in terms of the opportunity for women, they completely picked up their game, if I could call it that, in multiple different aspects, where I do believe it's been trending downhill broadly for men. And I do think there's a variety of reasons for that. We probably don't have time to get into all of them, but I would be concerned from an educational perspective. Just simply, it's gotten much harder. It's way more global. It's far less regional. 
And these are things that I've written about, which I know doesn't sound like things that someone in the family office world or active in Web3 would necessarily be talking about. But again, I think I'm pretty good at observing. Now it's kind of reached a funnel towards the top where let's go with men at the top that have uh, social skills, are in shape, are educated, and that are doing well, they seem to have all the opportunity. So is that 5 or 10% of the men? So that's what I mean when I talk occasionally on college campuses or I get re- people reach out to me. You know, I have a son who's a teenager and I try to impart my advice and I say, I'm probably going to be wrong like 51% of the time. But maybe a little under half of the time, I may have some interesting insight or be right. So those are just some things that I've noticed and I picked up on. If I answer your question from a little bit of a different perspective, you should be aware of your finances at a young age. You should understand how money works, credit. You should manage your credit score. You should understand the value of having discipline in your expenses. You don't need to buy every sneaker. Come on. What you need to do is put yourself in position to be successful in this world, which is getting harder and harder. You want to do things and start businesses, and you want to invest in assets that increase in value. Cars, well, rare exceptions, but are not going to go up in value. You want to own stock. You want to own real estate. You want to be active in crypto and Web3. You want to put yourself in position when you're younger to give yourself a head start. And you'll learn, and you'll learn the hard way. But i rather you do that at 16, 18, 20, even your early 20s versus in your 30s and 40s. Getting a head start and, tr- and taking control of your financial freedom. Maybe I could use that word. And that broadly relates, again, to the question that you asked for men or for women. Money does give you a level of freedom. The opportunity for optionality in your life, in your career, where you live. So to think that that's not a reality, to put your head in the sand and think, oh, no, that's not true. You're completely, completely wrong. This is a cold, hard truth about life. And whatever, 100000 today, a million dollars today, it's not going to feel like that in 10, 15 years. That's not enough. You know, you, you got to put yourself in position to own assets that go up in value, own businesses, and grow your wealth because you're going to need it. And maybe it's to give away and be beneficial to society, to pay your fair share in taxes. I'm cool with that. But again, you're putting yourself in position to be more successful. Don't wait until your 30s and 40s. Start that as soon as possible. Yeah, some of the things that you go through, and I'll just read uh, some of the points you made in this Instagram post, I think are really powerful. Make decisions and quantify the results. Take more massive action. Practice emotional control. And one of my favorites is never complain. And I think that there is so much complaining. We have so many outlets to complain that you can really kind of tell the difference between the people who are making moves, trying to do something with their life, and then the people that just sit back and complain all day long. And I think that that is such a waste of time 
when they could be focused on more of the positives or more of, hey, how can I get that financial freedom that I want to get? And so that's why I think it's important to bring it up because honestly, man, like that really made a big impact on me just reading some of the points that you made. Thank you. There's other ways that I can phrase that. I had time to think and be more thoughtful in that post. And you remind me, I should probably, uh, because it archives on stories, I should probably do it again. So you do remind me about that. I'll, I'll probably put it up on my Angelo Robles Meta on Instagram. I mean, I try to have a balance of investing in family offices, that work that I do in the world of Web3, but I also try to in, share a little bit of my personal life and part a little bit of, of my, you know, what makes us unique. To me, Instagram is not something to be 100% business, but I do want to have some focus on that because I think that's important. You're 100% correct. You only could, or I guess I was when I wrote that, you only <laughs> control how you feel. So do you want to be miserable? Do you want to complain? Does misery draw that kind of company and that's what you want? We all have struggles. I've had terrible, terrible things that have happened in my life. The older you live, the more bad shit you're going to see. And it's going to happen to you from your health, to your family, to loved ones and those around you. You honor them best through the legacy of what you do is being part of society. And yes, I do go back that the opportunity of being successful puts you in a position for freedom and to make choices and to also further give back and be a contributor to your community. Uh, I put up something slightly changing direction, but on the same thought, and hopefully it won't be banned on your podcast. I think one I did a day or two ago was effectively something to the effect of men with balls will be more successful than men who are smart. Now, don't get me wrong. Being smart and leveraging whatever IQ or potential you have absolutely is important. Be educated. Be humble. Always be learning. You don't know everything and you need to adapt. That's all great. I completely agree with that. Be well-read. Those are all things you could take action or massive action, like I mentioned. But at the end of the day, a lot of this is going to come down to what risk are you taking? How do you mitigate or, yeah, mitigate and manage your risk? And you mentioned the word that I wrote, take massive action. And when you're young, you have an opportunity. You probably don't have a mortgage. You're probably not married. You have the opportunity to take risk that someone older, there's much more of a deeper consequence for them to do. And maybe that's a reason why many entrepreneurs tend to be younger, many great artists and musicians. They are, one, society hasn't messed them up too much yet. They're still hungry. And the opportunity for them to take certain risks and do certain things is most free-flowing, arguably relative at a younger age. No excuses. No excuses. I come from an incredibly humble background. I'm half Latin. No, you can't let any of those things start to creep into your mind that that's holding you back. Now, is there going to be racism in the world? Is there going to be injustice? You bet you. And let's work together to make that better. And comparative to 10 or 20 years ago, trust me, I know it is better. But you can't use that as a crutch. You have to move forward. You're responsible for you. You have to put in the time, have the discipline, have a game plan, and then execute. 
And then a lot of it's not going to work. You need to adapt. How do you know what to drop? How do you know what to move forward with? And then move forward in your life. You can't make excuses and you can't complain. Strong. Yeah, really good stuff, Angelo. You, you mentioned some of the struggles that you went through personally. Uh, I don't want to go through all of them uh, because, again, uh, probably would take up this entire podcast and I got a lot of questions to ask. Unfortunately, you. it would. Uh, but uh, that's okay. <laughs> that just means we'll have to have you back. Uh, but I'd love for you to maybe focus on one thing that you look back on that you would like to tell young active investors today. I mean, I've had horrific things. Those that I've loved that passed away at a very, very young age. Uh, my mother dying in my arms, multiple businesses that I owned that I put my 24 seven into. And yeah, work hard and smart. Absolutely work smart. But if you think that you could get away without working hard, especially when you're young, you got the energy and early on in the business, you're just fooling yourself. But sometimes you do all of that and it doesn't work out. And you put in your time, which you can't get back, possibly money. I have given up a corporate career that was well-paying when I was younger because I wanted the opportunity to be an entrepreneur. And it did not always work. I launched what I'm doing now, Family Office Association, uh, 13 or so years ago. So I was, let's see, I got to figure out my own age here. I was, what, 42? I mean, I was not a young guy even then. And I've been fortunate. Now, maybe I learned from my experiences what worked, what didn't work. I had a greater network. And again, I mentioned earlier, and I wasn't saying that to be humble, you do got to surround yourself with great people. You're basically a collective of the five people that you spend the most time with. You want to be the weak link in that group of five, or you may be in their five. You want to jump into the deep end of the pool and learn how to swim. You want to be the weak link because you'll recognize that and you'll be motivated to get better. So you're not going to be that any longer. So I do find, even when I was younger and the mistakes that I made in a variety of different things from business to my personal life, and you know, none of us are perfect, the bad news for all you younger ones that may be watching it is you're still going to make mistakes even as you age. Hopefully, you won't be repeating similar mistakes because you'll learn. But the reality is, I could make no mistakes. So that means, how am I going to make no mistakes? I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to sit on my couch. I'm going to downsize to a studio and I'm never going to put myself out there in the world, interacting with people, getting rejected or starting businesses. And, oh my God, they may fail as society deems it to fail, but that's not the life that I want to live. I think there was something that I might've wrote in an Instagram post. What I remember are my regrets and we all have regrets not my mistakes or my failures, because I put myself out there. I look back and say, I'm proud that I did that, that I lived life, that I experienced rejection. And anyone in sales is going to know exactly what I mean. And at the end of the day, that's another skill, by the way, that young ones should learn. Emotional intelligence, interacting with others, communicating in a variety of different ways. And yet that dirty word, selling. For most people in the corporate world or in business, you better believe in what you're doing 
you better be able to communicate and listen, and you better have the opportunity of effectively being good in sales. I mean, maybe if you're a software engineer and happy working for a company, great. I'm not saying that it's needed in everything, but to be an entrepreneur, to grow a business when you don't have any income coming in, to motivate people to want to pay you, and sometimes the logic is they probably shouldn't. There probably is better options out there. But that belief in yourself and that capability and learning that is going to be very, very important. Uh, I stuck it out in businesses that I created where I could have switched over to a corporate position that effectively, again, I could have made XYZ number of dollars in the corporate world. And I pivoted because I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to not have regrets inside of me. And I did things in the world of financial services that were not successful endeavors. But that didn't stop me uh, from still looking to own assets where I could that could appreciate in value to enjoy the experience, to live life. I wasn't sitting in the couch. Again, I never fail. Well, yeah, you're sitting there doing nothing. That's why you never fail. I want to talk to the person that has failed multiple times and keeps going and learning. And then I was fortunate, again, in what I built in Family Office Association to be a successful uh, events company, membership organization, and lately more and more a consultancy uh, to significant families relative to setting up family office structures, investing, and many other aspects that I work with them on. Love it. Yeah, I especially really uh, connect with your note about surrounding yourself with successful people and being that weakest link. That's one of the reasons that I started this podcast. I wanted to connect with people like yourself who I really respect and, and really want to get to know and just learn from. And I think if you're on that constant journey of learning, you have no choice but to succeed. Yes, you're going to fail like you talked about. But if you put that momentum behind you, then you are ultimately uh, going to succeed. And, and you know, you're seeing that now with what you're doing with the Family Office Association. So tell me, uh, what is the Family Office Association and what's your role in working with family office investing? So I'll start with a definition for those that are not familiar, per a very traditional definition of what is a family office. When I started doing this again about 13 years ago, it seems like very, very few people outside of the niche industry even knew what it is or was. And now that has definitely changed. It has way more broad appeal, but I adhere to a little bit of a traditional definition. It's an entity created by one family of great wealth to internally and exclusively, often 24-7, manage their financial and often their other affairs. So a family with great wealth. And I would define most classically, that probably is about $750 million and up. It's a high benchmark. Now, don't get me wrong. <laughs> Making that first million seven figures into the eight figures, that's great. You're more successful than 99% of people, probably 99.9%. And with technology and things that we may talk about, what could be what's called a virtual family office, I am not saying that you cannot implement aspects of a family office at a lower number. But really, in my mind, to do it right, yeah, that's a lofty benchmark, you know, 750 million USD. Why? It gives them control, customization, 
and privacy. That doesn't mean that they don't deal with the banks and outside entities, they do, but they have the buffer of an entity with talent and people dedicated exclusively to them. So we're all rowing together. If I'm a talented wealth manager, I mean, I have other clients, but if I have my own single family office, and that's the more proper definition of what I'm describing, that talent is completely dedicated exclusively in an entity that I own just for me and my family. On to your question relative to the investing aspect of it. Usually that's an anchor aspect or foundational for many family offices. Often a person with an investment background might even be the head or running, whatever you want to call it, managing director, president, CEO of a family office. Sometimes that's good and sometimes it's not. Just because they're good at one specific thing, legal, accounting, or investing, doesn't necessarily mean they'll work well in the intimate environment, often with less resources than where they came from, or they'll be good at hiring, at firing, at leading. They may be used to more of a traditional corporate environment. Now, that's going to bring up a whole other subject on the hiring of talent to build a world-class family office. We'll probably save that for a bit of a different time. I want to go back to what you said about investing. There is a perception that at that level of wealth, let's just say $750 million or more, you're in the wealth preservation business. What does what the Warren Buffett rule? Number one, don't lose money. Number two, remember rule number one. Now, I used to be on board with that. I get it. And I still am. But you kind of felt that buck coming up. I've had different opinions as I've grown in my experiences, knowing, knowing thousands of families and just seeing what's going on around the world. Look at inflation running rampant. And for a family of great, great wealth, now I know a lot of us can't relate to this, but buying homes in the Hamptons and Malibu, buying more real estate stocks and Web3 crypto, buying art. Really, is there inflation 7 or 8%? It's probably like 20 to 25%. And then you couple in, how are they mitigating taxes? What kind of distributions are they doing? And it makes me wonder whether getting a 5 or 6% return, I mean, they're kind of losing purchasing power. So what I've been trending towards a little bit in the work that I do and the consulting that I do is I hear you on the safety part. And I agree, a good percentage of the portfolio should be diverse, should be carefully and conservatively invested. But if it's overly conservative, likely as we evaluate everything, taxes, distributions, and really what the true inflation is to you, your purchasing power as a family is likely dissipating. So how do you invest a part of your portfolio? And whether that's 3%, 10%, or 20%, uh, you know, that's going to vary. Each family is going to be different. But investing for more opportunities uh, in venture capital, in the world of Web3, uh, in, in biotech, AI, things that could have a far, far higher potential of payout to help the family over time. In the short term, it could always be volatile, those kind of asset classes. So that's something that I've been educating, if I could use that word, 
families on. And if I had a, for the most part, I think a lot of them have kind of missed the boat on that. They've been too conservative and a lot of them have been too slow to how the world is changing and evolving. And that could get into a deeper discussion on best practices in a family office and what does the best of the best look like compared to just one that's in the middle or mediocre. Angelo, this has been a bumpy year, uh, both up and down in most asset classes. So what has been your message to some of these family offices over the past quarter? Yeah, I mean, the whole year for the most part has been tough. You know, to me, you have to look at the bigger macro picture in terms of what's happening with interest rates. We mentioned inflation, which again, I'm not believing the government's numbers, especially for a family of great wealth that is expending on uh, assets and resources and simply expenditures as I described. Now, in theory, at the level of wealth that they have, with some dry powder to invest in things that are down, they do have, you would think, time horizon on their side. Let's, they should have liquidity. They should have some dry powder. Uh, and at that level of wealth, they could withstand periods, perhaps even multi-year, where assets that historically have been up and look promising are in a very volatile period. There's a war going on, inflation, interest rates, massive government deficit and debt. There's lots of problems. Let's not try to sugarcoat it here. There's lots of problems. But a family that's investing for the long haul, I was going to say five or 10 years, I'm not so sure that I don't mean 30 to 50 years. And again, this is not an average investor or family. You're asking me about the $750 million plus crowd. That's different. So yes, they should have a cash, bonds, real estate, public equities, but they absolutely should be investing in private companies, whether directly depending on their experiences and whether they want to be engaged at that level or through a private equity fund, they absolutely should be looking towards the future and be an active, in my opinion, in venture capital, biotech, AI, longevity. Uh, there's just so much out there from the perspective of what's happening. And again, a lot of my experience that we didn't even really dive into yet is what's happening broadly in Web3 in crypto and NFTs, in DAOs, in the metaverse. These are going to be, this is not going to go away. These are going to be massive, very volatile. For sure, there'll be losers and there'll be some utterly massive winners. Uh, so families need to look at it from a long-term perspective. Now that ties in the level of talent they have, who they're outsourcing to, and how that internal talent is being compensated. And is it fair both to the family and to the executive, especially if the family has a longer term perspective, how is that executive who's very talented running money, let's go with that word. Uh, I mean, you may be pulling them from a private equity shop. You may be pulling them from an investment bank. You have to make it attractive for them, looking at it from a long-term perspective in terms of compensation. So unfortunately, a lot of family offices fall into mediocrity. They are very far from optimal, and they're not even close, many of them, to being you know, top 1% implies that you're better than 99 out of 100 others. 
So the reality is only one in a hundred is going to be, quote unquote, that top 1%. But out of the thousands of family offices out there, what I love to do is I want to identify those top 1%. What is the family doing? What is the executives doing? Why are they so good? Why are they both effective and efficient? And what could I learn? And by meeting and discussing with other amazing family offices, what could I impart to them that maybe one little tweak that they could do to be, you know, stay ahead of the curve, to be still at that top 1%. I mean, most would be happy to be top 20%. That at least means you're good. But I would like to hope you're only going to have, in my opinion, a family office if you desire for it to be great. And to me, that may mean being top 1%. Angela, what is the most common reason that some of these family offices get stuck in mediocrity? It's a great question. Because often they created this great wealth, usually, not all the time, but through a family business. And they worked hard. They made the right decisions. And often it took generations, although now with tech companies, maybe that happens a little quicker. And they ran it with rigor, with with quantifiable metrics. And somehow, so they have a liquidity event, let's make it simple, whatever, a billion dollars. And now like, ooh, we're really rich. So I tell them, if you decide on a single family office, and it's not always the best decision, but if you do what I just told you before, if you want it just to be okay, then please don't hire me. I want you to have it be great. You have to run it kind of like you did the business, which obviously if you sold it for that amount of money, you were doing something right. So now the family business, I think it's a pretty important one. In my example, it's managing your billion dollars. Yet somehow what usually happens is the patriarch or matriarch will hire an existing relationship that they trust. And trust is very, very important, very important. But that person may not be optimal. They probably should be a short-term opportunity to get the family office off the ground, to know what's working, what's not working, and then to likely have a transition to become more institutional and more rigorous. I would argue, do it right initially. Set up the right structures in the right domicile, have it be most tax efficient as you can make it, and try to bring on the best talent that would work well in the culture of the family office as possible. You may need committees and boards. Again, I don't want to bore the audience with too much from how that interplays and how that plays out and setting up a private trust company. And I've been the biggest believer, and we'll talk from, say, a U.S. family, is, yeah, sure, you want to be strategic in terms of where it could be domiciled among which state is Texas best, is South Dakota, New Hampshire, Florida, why, why not? There's lots of factors that play in. But I've been more and more active in for families at the level I'm talking about should also create international structures. And I have a series that I created. I used to call it sovereign risk for family offices, but Scott, that was just too boring. I rebranded <laughs> it. I rebranded it as disaster prep for billionaires. Uh, and we may have a chance to get a little bit into that. If you're 
going to do a family office, especially initially, that's the best time to do it really, really right. But even if you have an existing family office, wouldn't you want to go from being in the middle of the pack to being a little better, to being a little better and keep on working towards at least being in the top 20%. And there's enough best practices, thought leadership and research and, you know, me and others out there that could definitely help to make that happen. But it is a little shocking how most, I mean, I guess by the law of numbers, most are going to be kind of in that middle and not so bad, you know, not so great either way. But I would say it's the lack of rigor, a focus of institutional approach, of quantifiable uh, metrics that are important. It can't all just be qualitative, although that is absolutely a part of it. So doing it right apparently is very, very hard for many. And hopefully me and selectively others around the world look to change that. Yeah, that's interesting. It's interesting to see that kind of dichotomy where they uh, would create so much success in one area of their lives and then just be like, okay, well, we're going to try this and hopefully it'll work out. You know what I mean? Like not having that same process for success. And that's where, uh, you know, coming to someone like you and and you working with all of these different offices and, and passing along that advice could be really valuable for people. Yeah, you remind me when you said the word process, because people like things that are easy to remember, maybe in threes or fives. I'll give your audience one on family offices now, or for family offices that may be listening. To me, the big three are your people. So that's your talent, number one, your processes, which relates to your standards, your structures, and a process of governance, which is how decisions are made. So again, numbers one and two, your talent, your processes, and your technology, which maybe 10 years ago wouldn't have made the top three list. But there's so many reasons now where machines, AI, technology, and we're seeing it especially uh, during COVID, when a lot of the family offices, a lot of the talent didn't go to one centralized location. So very, very important. I do think we may have a future, not to scare your audience, it's 20 or 30 years away, I think, maybe sooner, where, I mean, given that I am so active in Silicon Valley, given that I hopefully have some insights as to what's going on, and many of you are familiar with great futurists like Ray Kurzweil and Peter Diamandis and others, I mean, there's lots happening out there. We will have a point when the machines, the technology, may surpass the number two process and eventually may surpass us as humans and become number one. It's a little sad. Uh, there is the word family in family office. Let's not forget that. So that interactivity and engagement with the family is still very, very important. But I'd keep an eye from both an investing perspective and the reality of how things are trending. Now, this also goes back to what you asked about the young ones in college. And, you know, we can make them very nervous now and say is whatever they're doing in accounting and legal, is that going to go the way of AI and machines and tech in 10 or 20 years? Probably a good part of it will. Being a radiologist, really? Is that going to be a great profession in 10 or 20 years? Already, technology is better than humans at that. There's lots of things changing. And like I said earlier, it's a little scary. It's not all good. 
one of the Instagram posts that I did put up, I mean, related to make money now, make money over the next 10 years, because things may get interesting looking 10 or 20 years out from both the governmental perspective, government confiscation and taxation, massive inflation deficits, uh, war. I mean, there's lots of different things that I could, and this is what I work on with disaster prep for billionaires, meant to be a little tongue in cheek. I could work on it with people at, of course, $999 million as well. But getting serious for a moment, this is why, again, you want to be adaptable, you want to own assets that go up in value. And yes, money does allow you a degree of more freedoms and things may get interesting in 10 and 20 years. Make money now. It's going to get harder in the decade and after to come. Angelo, how have you evolved as an investor from when you started the Family Office Association to now? Well, I mean, that would relate both one to me personally and what I see top 1% family offices doing and perhaps how I may guide them in certain discussions. And the reality is each investor is different. We all have different goals, different time horizons, different liquidity needs, and things also change. How I feel now may be very different. I may need to adapt in a month, in a year, in three years. But of course, that would be a terrible answer. You need something a little more engaging than that. Uh, but that was probably the most technically accurate answer. <laughs> uh, but in terms of answering your question from my perspective, and I think from what you know, following me on Instagram and what I talk about, I love, hey, cash could be good. Bonds have a purpose. Real estate, very intriguing. I wish I was more involved from a younger age. The opportunity for leverage, for tax benefits. And again, most millionaires probably still come from the world of real estate, not billionaires, but millionaires. So, and public stocks, they're easy to research. We can relate to them. We use their services. All of that is wonderful. It's great. But yes, as many of you know, or you may know, Scott, that during COVID, I mean, I found out about the world of Bitcoin and crypto. Uh, I'm based in Greenwich, Connecticut, my business. Uh, the Winklevi twins, as many people in the world of crypto will know, are from Greenwich, Connecticut. Uh, so I heard them speak at a program in Greenwich. I may be a little off. I'm going to put it 2012, maybe 2013. And even then I was in my 40s. I'm like, what the hell is this? Like, I can't see, feel, or touch it. And th th this is this is bullshit. But it's kind of cool. Uh, okay. Then I went to a conference a year later. Uh, and I heard some other early pundits in Bitcoin talk, and it got a little more of my attention. I ended up buying some in 2017. And of course, you know what happened later in 2017? It goes down a lot in value. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's Murphy's Law will follow many of you. It's the way of life. You have to accept that. <laughs> and you have to laugh at it and move forward. It's just the world is, the universe is testing you. I kind of forgot about it. I didn't sell it. And then during COVID, I had time on my hands. We, I mean, back in the early stages of COVID, about a little over two years ago, we didn't really know. I mean, we were really locked up in the home ordering food to come in. And then, you know, things started to become a little bit more clear three months, six months later, et cetera. Uh, 
So that gave me time. And in Greenwich, Connecticut, we have a very prominent hedge fund manager that many of you know, Paul Tudor Jones. Uh, Tudor Jones has spoken at my events at Family Office Association before, but he did a white paper that summer of 2020. Like Bitcoin is going to be the fastest race in the horse relative to whatever gold, this or that. It was co-written by someone of great prominence, I believe also formerly at the IMF, and it got my attention. And that's when I started to put dozens into hundreds of hours in broadly to Bitcoin, to crypto, and I started to understand it. Given a little bit of prominence that I might have, I spoke to some very influential people, and I wanted, I didn't want to anchor. I wanted to get both points of view, kind of the positive and the negative. At the end of the day, I formed the thesis. I probably did too much research. <laughs> and I actually argue that, yes, you could do that. Because how much time did I spend? Say it was 400 hours. Do I really need to spend 400 hours doing diligence that I wouldn't have got after 30 or 40 hours? So one, it impacted my time that I'll never get back. But here's my big point. Listen up, audience. This is what I learned from billionaire families. Why don't I just put in 1%? Like if it goes to nothing, effectively, who gives a shit? So now that I'm engaged by it, that I own it, I'm going to be more passionate to want to learn more about it. You mitigate your risk by limiting your size at 1%, at 2%, at 3%. And then you uptick your knowledge over time and experience. Looking back, the biggest investment mistakes we all make is not sizing enough to those things that went exponentially or asymmetrically up in value. I wish I put more money into Solana early, early last year. And yes, I did invest in Shiba Inu and it went up a lot and I wish I put more in. <laughs> I wish I also <laughs> took some out a little bit earlier. <laughs> Uh, so I have great respect for Bitcoin and the community. I completely get proof of work. I do understand why some people become Bitcoin maximalist, but that was not for me. I wanted to look at it more diverse. I was intrigued by Ethereum, by Solana, and I started to become active. I call them more tokens, but in the world of tokens. And that led me down uh, to becoming, you know, having a podcast where I'm pretty active in that part of the community, interviewing Michael Saylor and many, many others, Raul Paul, et cetera, uh, and learning from them, but effectively, relatively quickly forming my own thesis, making a decision, investing little amounts, and deciding kind of what's working, what's not working for me. If anything, maybe the first year or so, I was too diversified. And I would have benefited more from being more concentrated. At this stage, I'm highly intrigued and active in the world of uh, tokens, NFTs. It very interested in DAOs. I think the metaverse is going to be just utterly incredible and parts of it, yes, scary. But the whole Web3 ecosystem I find completely fascinating. Is there a lot of bad apples in it? You bet you. Is it incredibly volatile? Yes. Are there times I wish that I wasn't so engaged by it? Yes. And this has not necessarily been a great year, but I'm in it for the long haul. It's a part of an asymmetrical aspect of my portfolio and the portfolio of more and more families that I talk to. Yes, I get that question. How many families at that 750 
million dollar level are broadly active in Web3. One, a lot of them don't tell the truth. They don't want to answer that question. So they basically say we're not, but they really are. So I think Goldman Sachs had a study about six months ago that of those type of families, about 70% internationally were active to some degree, maybe $100 in Bitcoin, and about 40% of US-centric families. So I guess US-centric, US-centered families are behind the curve. Although I think when you factor in their exposure to VC and VC, they met may have exposure to Web3, probably those numbers go up a not. But yes, it's safe to say, if I had to keep it simple, the adoption among the super, super rich broadly in the world of Web3 is going up. This is not going to go from an analog world to a digital world back to analog. I mean, something would really have to go wrong. Terrible, terrible, terrible things. Again, there's frauds and bad things are going to happen and it's very volatile, but there's going to be tremendous opportunity. Could this grow in market cap from what it is now, what, somewhere between one and two trillion to a hundred trillion or more in 10 years? Absolutely. Now, will other asset classes either shrink or grow as well? Yes, of course. And I get it. Real estate and public equity is you know, still the big powerful one and two, but that's no guarantee. Let's see what happens as time plays out. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You mentioned a few uh, different aspects about crypto and Web3. Angela, which sector, I guess if you want to call it, of crypto and Web3 and Web excites you the most? I mean, like many of us that have some activity in the world of, let's call it crypto, we almost always start in Bitcoin. And how could he not respect it? What I said earlier, relative to truly being decentralized, no one person in charge, no computer for a government to shut down. There's lots to respect about Bitcoin. But again, I decided for me not to be a maximalist. Bitcoin is among broadly the Web3 and crypto holdings that I have, but I enjoy Ethereum and Solana now and many others. Now, the Bitcoin maximalist would say, oh, my God, Solana, that's not really decentralized. That's you know proof of stake. It's controlled by VCs. And there are absolutely elements of truth to that. I'm not denying that. But it serves a different purpose. And maybe not everything needs to be perfectly decentralized. Maybe that's the role of a store of value of Bitcoin. But others, Ethereum and other platforms, Terra Luna, serve a different purpose. Uh, so for me, or as an investor, I want to make money. Like, I don't want to get too caught up in the philosophical aspect of the conversation. I want to be familiar with it. I want to be respectful for those on the other side of the fence. But I want to keep my mind open to opportunity. Your question was, what gets me excited? So we all kind of start there. But I do admit, when I started to get active in NFTs, which wasn't that long ago, six months ago, it does, it's more habit forming than crypto. You feel more emotional attachment to it. 
And six, seven months ago, it felt like everything was going up. That's not the case anymore. Uh, but for those that think it's nothing more than a glorified JPEG that you happen to own, it's verifiable on the blockchain. So, okay, digital art. By the way, the traditional art world is a pretty big business. Digital art doesn't sound so bad to me. I think that will be a very intriguing business. It's going to be great for creators relative to a variety of aspects, but making a career out of it and on the resale, getting a piece of the action, which they should be getting. And this creates a tremendous opportunity for creators. But NFTs are so much more than just digital art. Uh, the opportunity via how it represents on the blockchain that we're going to see things like driver's license, passports, uh, deeds to homes, fractionalization of real world, quote unquote, physical assets. I believe our homes are effectively going to be NFTs. Look how wickedly inefficient the whole home buying process is. Every aspect of it, including the record keeping of it, it's completely antiquated and absolutely could be manipulated. That goes into my disaster prep for the super rich, but we'll save that one for a bit of a different time. If all you think that NFTs are nothing more than digital art, you, you're, you're very ignorant. Now, what you should do is forget the couple of hundred hours that's not needed. Put in a couple of dozen of the right hours, both sides of the fence, talk to some people and form your own thesis. And if your thesis is, this is all gonna go away, your thesis is wrong. Well, but most NFT projects will probably be worth nominal. Uh, yeah, most traditional art is worth well under $1,000. That's all around the world. Now, we don't have time to get into what to look for moving forward, what kind of utility. And that really is a big thing about NFTs is it opens the opportunity for utility, for perks and rewards of being part of a community. Now, the metaverse, I think, may even take that to a level that we're too early. We're not there, but we're trending there. And some of it is a little scary. And is the matrix going to become a reality? Some aspect of it will, whether we like it or not. Not that long ago, what, 100 years ago? Okay, I'm a little off. Let's go with 100 years. Like what? Like no radio, no telephone? Uh, okay, probably 127 years or something like that. Uh, so we were 100% face-to-face. We couldn't do what we're doing now. We had to be based in our local community unless we traveled. And then the radio, and then the telephone, then the TV, and then the computer, then the laptop, then social media. You get the idea. What I'm basically saying now is at least half of our life, including what we're doing today, has nothing to do with us being face-to-face. -face. It's digital. It's a digital representation. And as technology advances, as Gen Z grows to prominence, as what's coming up before Gen Z, this is all they know. And the young ones now on Minecraft, on Roblox, on Fortnite, which is an element of the metaverse, oh, everything is changing. 70 to 80% plus of our interactivity already for younger people, but eventually for us, including in the workforce, is gonna be digital. This is not gonna slow down. There's a reason why Facebook changed their name to Meta. They're 100% correct. Now, do I necessarily want to be a part of their centralized metaverse? Well, to some degree, I may have to, because that's where relationships that I have are migrating to. 
but I'm also going to look for more open, decentralized platforms. And I'm also looking at it from how the world is going to shape up to an investment perspective. So these are all things that I've been getting investors and family offices more familiar with. Hopefully they sense a little bit of my passion behind it. And But I want them to do their own diligence, form their own thesis, make their own decision. And again, like I said earlier, now it depends on their wealth. They have multiple billions of dollars. Maybe for them, it's under 1% that they start with. But to ignore it and not be a part of it, like I, I told one of them a couple of days ago, 30, 30% of your current portfolio is doing terrible. It's in cash, treasuries, bad bonds, and gold. Now, those could be good assets over time for a conservative part of your portfolio. But why don't you take 5% of what you have in that and reposition it to broadly the Web3 community that I'm talking about, even if you don't want to be a direct owner of NFTs yet or tokens, then invest in the right VC funds that give you exposure to the things that I'm talking about and put in whatever, half a 1%, 50 basis points or one or 2%. Eventually they got it. Here's been a little bit of my experience as well. The wealth creator of great wealth, even if they're in their 70s and 80s, they know what it's like to take a risk. They understand what's the asymmetrical opportunity. What are the odds? I don't know. Maybe they play chess and poker. I don't know what it is, but they get it. Sometimes it's the more my age bracket, family office executive, where their education and training actually is a negative in the world of Web3 because it's such a different dynamic than what they're used to. So sometimes I'll meet with the executives, then meet with the founding family member and the founding family member is like exactly what Angelo said. This is interesting. We should be involved. We're going to mitigate our risk by managing our exposure and we're going to start really small. And why are we wasting time here talking about it any further? Let's do it and move forward. Wow. Angelo, a uh, great answer. You, you answered about uh, six different questions that I had there, my friend. So thank you very much. That was very thorough. Uh, let's dive a little bit more into NFTs. I have a few NFTs. In fact, the theme song to this podcast is a Snoop Dogg song that is an NFT. And so because I own the NFT, I can use it for this podcast, which is exactly. very cool. I got Snoop on the pod. Um, <laughs> What are some uh, NFT projects maybe that you own that you're uh, willing to share? And what are some that you're excited about? Well, I'm going to keep some of that private for a variety of security and other reasons. Of course, I'll yeah. Broadly, I'll broadly answer your question. I do think we are trending towards the blue chips are going to be kind of the winners. And I think that's pretty obvious to a lot of people. So Yuga Labs that created, my God, just one short year ago, it's hard to believe, Board Ape Yacht Club and now owns a lot of the big brands, including CryptoPunks. Uh, Yuga Labs is gonna be highly, highly successful. You want me to make a bold comment on your podcast? I'll make it now. I think they're gonna effectively be like the next Disney. It's gonna be huge. It's gonna be a tremendous asymmetrical opportunity. Now, some of you may be saying, well, do I just go and buy the Ape token? I can't answer that for you. I do not think that's perfectly direct exposure, but you'll be catching some of the wind of the uptake on it until it goes down a lot. And then many of you get out 
Others will stay in like they did with Bitcoin and others, and we'll get a more massive rise, maybe looking four to six years out. But they're launching a metaverse initiative. It's an opportunity to, you know, you know airdrop and mint for those that want to be active in it. I That is going to be a highly successful project. Yeah, there was a time six, seven months ago where it felt like anything that you did kind of doubled the next day or felt that way. And it's not that way anymore. As the market grows, there's more entrants, there's more bad apples, there's more rug pulls, uh, there's more competition. It's not easy. So for more of on the family office level, yeah, probably some of the blue chip is going to be more the way to go. Uh, maybe one that's rising, although many of you are going to be familiar. I think CloneX is interesting, and that would be an intriguing project. And yes, I do get so many young ones that will reach out to me like, you know, Angelo, I'm 17, 18 years old. I'm not going to do, I wish I could, but a Board Ape Yacht Club or even a CloneX is going to be tens of thousands of dollars. So what are projects to potentially get into at, you know, whatever, a tenth of an ETH or something like that? And those are, there's especially now compared to six, seven months ago, why don't you go on the Discord? Why don't you see what kind of, who the founders are, check out their Twitter, how's, what are they doing as a utility? And maybe it's just simply something that you simply just like. You like what they're about and how it looks. It doesn't always have to be about money. Uh, most of the great collectors of art, traditional art that I know, they didn't start off saying, whoo I wanna make a lot of money on my art collection. I had a guest on, she was a Holocaust survivor. She might've been like 100 or 101. She, she was sharp and looked great and started a collect art in the late 40s and 50s. And, you know, 20, 30 years later, ooh, wow, my collection's now worth a couple of hundred million dollars, but didn't start that way. Like, it, it's that's probably the best way to do it for the vast majority of people. Yeah, there's going to be some professional trader and flippers out there. Yes, there's metrics you can use that give you online metrics to help give you more granular information relative to the NFTs. I'd keep an eye on music-centric NFTs, NFTs with greater utility. Those are all things that would have potential as we're evolving in this community to have a greater chance of, I guess you would use the word, taking off. Yeah, things are happening so fast, not just in the NFT space, but in Web3 in general. What are some resources that you lean into to help you stay up to date? I mean, it's, I mean, literally, if you're not on a part of it almost every day, like it's, you fall behind. So it's really, really hard. I'm going to slightly answer a different question then come back to that. So this is another question that I get from the $750 million family offices. And you know maybe I'll start a business around this one as well. And I'm telling them now that I think they should start to onboard part of their investment team, Web3 slash digital asset professionals. Uh, tokens, maybe meme tokens, NFTs, the metaverse. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The challenge is... How are they going to find and motivate people like that, that often on their own, one, they're used to being very independent, and they may be doing very, very, very well financially, where you're not going to be able to bring them in. But there's ideas to potentially 
make that happen that I'm, I'm circulating and I'm, I'm working on. I do find that to be something that's very, very intriguing. Uh, there's a couple Twitter, as you're familiar with, of course, probably has the most number of deeper thinkers and thought leaders. Uh, Cosmo Dimitri, Dingling. Yeah, these are names that people have as their anon. Dingling, by the way, is very likely a well-known, probably tech billionaire. But I love to follow what he does on Twitter. Everyone who knows NFTs knows of Punk6529 that came to bear last summer and now is a he or she, whatever, a megastar. Very intriguing work and probably the most thoughtful, deep thinker and writer. I do enjoy macro thinkers like Raul Paul. And again, they're all, they're all on Twitter. So you get a fair amount of it for free. Then you could elect if you want to subscribe to other services that they have. If you think you're going to rely on your traditional institutions, well, my bank or my MFO is going to give me a research report. I'm going to laugh at you, please. You're living from 20 years ago. This is changing by the minute. Some of the people that I mentioned, they have to post 10 or 20 times a day. I mean, that would drive me crazy. I don't know how they do it. So the resources are changing rapidly. By the time you have a book in your hand, it's a, well, I mean, today's world, I guess you could do it quicker, but, or in your Kindle, whatever, but you get the point. In the world of Web3, even if that was three or six months ago, that's old news. I mean, I've done a million PDFs and white papers on the subject, and some of them would need to be completely rewritten. Everything, everything is changing. We're, and this goes back to what you asked about the young ones and what I talk about in colleges and universities, which again, all things are probably get me in more trouble that do me any benefit back to me <laughs> uh, for a variety of things, including how we open this interview with your first question, which is probably gonna get a lot of uh, flack from people that may misinterpret to some degree what I said. Uh, would you like for me to be politically correct? Would you like for me to, you know, all my posts to say, hi, everyone, I hope you're having a great day. Keep on trucking on. I mean, I rather talk, I rather talk about how I feel. And I know that I'm going to be wrong a lot. But I want to wear my my thoughts, my feelings, my emotions on my sleeve. And I'm more than willing to get critique and feedback because I make a lot of mistakes. And if I didn't accept that, I wouldn't have created a company in my 40s after multiple failures that I've had that has been successful in family office association and really has allowed me to know hundreds to thousands of such amazing entrepreneurial families and professionals that work in them that hopefully I impart something to them. But for sure, I learn a lot from them. And to think I'm actually getting paid to do it too. What a, what a great gig that I found. I don't know how I did it. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, Angelo, your, your interview with Michael Saylor is, in my opinion, one of his best talks. It's the one that I legit send around to my friends. Oh, my God. Because gosh. it is so well, it, it's so well researched and so thorough. You really kind of take, take them through everything from his history to how he discovered Bitcoin to, you know, making his big investments. What are some takeaways that you got from that conversation? And how did that talk shape your view on Bitcoin? Michael Saylor is an amazingly talented and wickedly great communicator. 
It was an honor to have him on about a year ago. I'd love to have him back. Michael, if you're listening, he's not responded to me for my request to come back. I do take pride. Listen, I don't know. Some of my interviews, is it 5%? Is it 50%? Honestly, they're probably not so good. It's not my day job. You're more of a professional at it than I am. But I am curious. I do. I'm pretty creative. And when I put my effort to it, which, and I would know what you do, this takes way more time than the average person thinks. Uh, when I do that, I think I come up with questions that are very, very unique in the industry. And especially on the digital asset side with some of the great guests that I've had on, they've gotten questions they've never had before. Uh, they've not always liked them. And one of the reasons why I've not had a lot of the big names on a second time, well, maybe I'm not big enough is one reason I want to be on bigger platforms, is I do ask questions that are uncomfortable. And Michael Saylor, for sure, got those questions. What I was really intrigued about with Michael was before I even got to Bitcoin, his MIT, how he processes information, how he thinks, what he learned in college, what he would do differently. Uh, and then, yes, we got into layer twos and taproot and the genesis block of Bitcoin. And, you know, was does the government control exit nodes and yeah, things that he probably didn't really like too much. But he definitely answered them because he's Michael Saylor. Uh, so I felt I learned a lot. Uh, that is one that has been played uh, at various universities and others that I've been. That's one of the reasons why I've been asked to speak relative to that. So I always appreciate Michael. That's by far my most downloaded video ever. Uh, from what others say in the world of Bitcoin, my plan B interviews, especially my one from December of 2021, just a couple of months ago, I thought was really, really good. And I've enjoyed my several interviews, especially my last one, also from December of 2021 with I believe it's technically pronounced Rail, but most of you know him as Raul Powell of Real Vision, who I think is great. Wish I had a little bit more time. I'm known for my longer form interviews. I'm doing an interview today uh, with Adam Robinson, who's been on several times, one of the greatest deep thinkers about how to make decisions and about big picture world issues ever. So those are some of my favorite uh, J.J. Sowers, who I've had on several times, although it's been probably about a year, but I felt that his insight to NFTs and the metaverse going back a year or two, year and a half ago, when no one really was familiar with this, was well ahead of the curve. We spoke about social tokens. One day, it's too early, one day social tokens, I hope, I'm investing in Rally and Friends with Benefits and others, will be a big thing. It's just not quite there yet. But yes, uh, I don't put as many of them up on my Apple and Spotify as I used to. I got to get more active with that. That's on me. But they are on my YouTube platform, which apparently is always hard to find. Uh, it's I own Family Office, so it's at Family Office. We're rebranding it as The Angelo Robles Podcast on YouTube. But if you look hard enough, you'll find it. Put in either Family Office or my name and you know, definitely subscribe. Of course, as you all know, it's free content. And I really do enjoy my conversations in the world of Web3 and crypto. And I think I'm pretty unique and thoughtful in my questions. One of my favorite interviews was with James Altashir, who also runs a very successful podcast, probably a top 100. I'm nowhere near that. And he's just such a 
creative thinker. I like to talk to people who are a little crazy, highly creative, and I get to ask them like anything. Like, are we living in a simulation? I get to ask them crazy stuff that others may just hang up the phone or, or well, that actually did happen to me once. Again, sometimes they don't like the questions. <laughs> I prefer not to share questions beforehand. I don't want them overly prepared. And a little tip I'll give to some of you or don't know the insides of our podcasting industry, there are definitely some guests, especially behind the corporate America veil, veil that will not come on unless they could not only view your questions, but basically heavily edit a lot of them. Now, sometimes they're such a big name guest that you probably, to have them on, you have to do it. But I love the fact, a tip to, a, a shout out to Michael Saylor. He could care less about what my questions were going to be because he's confident enough, even though he didn't like some of them, he's confident enough to answer them and he doesn't need to be overly prepped. I'll always respect Michael Saylor even if he never comes back to me. Uh, I'm sure he will come back, Angelo, because I, like I said, I thought your interview with him uh, was fantastic. And uh, honestly, well, he's you. probably just on every, everyone else's oh, yeah. podcast. Yeah, he, the, the, he's got to run a public company. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little and, more important. And the new podcast with him comes out almost on the daily. So I think, uh, I think that's one of the reasons that I really wanted to talk to you, man, is because you do ask unique and interesting questions. And it's not just the basics. And, uh, and so I, you know, I fully want to get you back on because I think that there's so much that we can go over and, and talk through. I have already taken uh, well over an hour of your time. So I will, uh, you know, finish things with just two more questions, if that's okay with you. Sure. First one is what are your top three kind of crypto web three ideas right now? What are the three kind of protocols that you're most excited about? Doesn't mean people have to buy them. I'm not looking for a buy now kind of thing, but just things that you're excited about. You mentioned social tokens, uh, layer twos, et cetera. Yeah. And probably if you follow my advice, at least in the short term, you're assured your investment's going to go down. So this is just for entertainment purposes. And again, I'm wrong at least 51% of the time, which is more than half the time. Uh, I do like Ethereum. I know it's boring. Uh, I still like Solana, even though it's got punched in the face a bit. And yes, I agree. It's, I don't care what the Nakamoto coefficient says, it is centralized. Uh, anything that Sam Bankman free touches, that guy is going to be the next Bill Gates. Uh, he's touched by the hand of you know who. Uh, I'd keep an eye on what they're believers and supporters of, because I think that's going to be good. Uh, what are they? ICP, I think me and Raul Paul spoke a little bit about that in December that massive money behind it. It's been a dog. It's been a dog. But one day they're going to do something. And I'm still holding on to it probably too long. I love Terra Luna. Now they're big. Some of the ones I'm mentioning, Ethereum, Terra Luna, you know, you're not going to get 100x on those. Well, maybe over a long, long, long amount of time you will. But you know, that's the challenge too, is some people, I want to get in and make a lot of money. Yeah, that's just so easy to do. <laughs> it's it's not that simple. Like you tell people, like you may get a 10x return over 10 years in Bitcoin or Ethereum, and they're disappointed. Like, come on, like it's ridiculous. It's in it's I don't know what to say, but I do love Terra Luna. Uh, there's other smaller tokens I'm involved in. I'm 
probably not as much going to mention them. I don't want people to put their life savings in them. They're incredibly volatile. Yes, social tokens are something I completely believe it's day will come. I am too early. Uh, so I, I already mentioned two of them, a rally, friends with benefits. Uh, there's a couple of others that I'm active in. Uh, and I'm really, really excited about the potential of social tokens. NFTs, I mentioned Clonex already. Now, again, I know that's going to be tens of thousands. It's not going to be for everyone. Uh, for family office level, I would still look at things like Board Ape Yacht Club. Just look at what Yuga Labs broadly is doing. Like I did say earlier, I think they're another one like Sam Bankman Freed. What they do is going to be very, very successful. Obviously, Chris Dixon, another great follow, by the way, on Twitter, on Web3 at Andreessen Horowitz. Uh, so for those that are more institutional level families that may prefer to be a significant allocator as an LP to a fund, good luck getting into that. But if you have enough money, like maybe a hundred million that you're looking to waive, you might be able to do it unless you're coming through a fund of funds and pay higher fees. But you know what? Normally I'm not the biggest fan of fund of funds, but to be active in the right players in Web3, when you have no other choice, there may be no other choice. In longer term, it may still be the right decision for many families. Uh, in the metaverse, I mean, obviously you have Sandbox, you have Decentraland. Of course, I own them as part of the portfolio. I wouldn't say that I have a very, very strong, like, aha, they're going to be there in 10 years. Uh, I Yes, I think that Meta and Microsoft will be players in that community. If I had to give you one, what Yuga Labs is doing, I am pretty darn sure that's going to be successful at some level in the metaverse. I think NFT worlds is very intriguing to me as well. And again, these are all very, very volatile. It's early and there is no expert. There's just some people, and I'm not one of them, who are really, really smart in this community that I try to follow and get to know and then form my own thesis and make my own decisions, which again, are wrong a lot. Wow. Uh, no, I think that that's, those are really great. And, and I've heard of all of those. And so that's good. It's not that, you know, you're not, honestly, man, you're not shilling meme coins here. I mean, these are real projects. Well, real and you people behind still, them, so. I hear you. And I know the utility is limited, but you could still make money in meme coins. Last year, there was massive amounts of money you could have made from Shiba Inu to Doge to some names I've Probably don't want to get us all in trouble. Maybe to mention there's some unique there's some unique meme tokens out there, uh, and you know, to Shiba Inu's credit, they're actually doing some real shit, uh, quote unquote, real world production. What they're doing in NFTs, what they're mentioning in, in games. So, like at the end of the day, what's the adoption that it's getting? What's its network effect? Take your emotions of what we learned in traditional finance or your logic that we learned, a lot of it just isn't really applicable in this world that we're dealing with now, which I know is shocking to me too. It's just the reality of it. Your education from a traditional perspective in finance is probably a detriment in the world of Web3. You have to relearn. Angelo, I think we'll finish off with this. And, you know, again, this has just been a really powerful, very uh, thorough interview with you. And, and yet I feel like I could talk to you for another two hours. So thank you very much. But let's finish off with you talking to me about the importance of curiosity and thinking for yourself when it comes to active investing. 
I'm not so sure that's not number one. Uh, there's always going to be someone smarter. There's always going to be someone, again, you know, whatever, you know, you have a 112 IQ, someone has a 160. Again, I want to have as much horsepower as I possibly could. But would I rather have a Ferrari engine, but nothing works? Or would I rather have a Chevrolet and it works perfectly and you're able to maximize the capability that you have? As I get to know billionaires, yes, some of them, we know some of them already, are wickedly smart with wickedly high IQs, and they still got lucky and made the right decisions. But many of them, many of them are effectively just average relatively from intelligence. They have the guts, they make the right decisions, they were disciplined, and they're curious. It's really really important to be curious. That should be the main value that you're getting out of an education in school. I mean, really, for the most part, 10 years after you graduate, are you going to remember every class you took? Is it really going to stick that much in your mind? And okay, so you're taking accounting. You probably could have learned that on your own. You could learn that from YouTube videos. It's being independent. It's living away from parents. It's engaging with others. It's building your network and increasing your social and your communication skills that are going to be highly valuable for you moving forward. Uh, you want to be curious, which is your IQ to some degree, and probably a large degree is relatively, it is what it is. But like I said about the Chevrolet, I think you can maximize it and have it be effective. But there's things that is just your raw desire, your discipline and your curiosity. It doesn't really take any skill. You just have to realize that. Don't be bashful. Don't be afraid. Be curious. Talk to people. Ask questions. Throw yourself in the conversation. Be a good listener. Learn. Be disciplined and be curious is more important than being right. Like really, in every conversation you enter, does it always have to be a debate where you have to prove that you're right? The other thing that I would ask yourself, and I mentioned this to the young ones too, and usually this is something I ask people that would, let's go with the word debate or differ than me on something, whatever, in Web3 or crypto. And a lot of them are smart and they say some interesting things. Maybe I learned from them, but I usually also like to look them, look at them and say, what would cause you to change your mind? And too many of them, effectively say nothing. They may not say it that bluntly, but that's what they mean. They are so anchored in being right that they don't want to be curious. They're, they've already made their decisions. Now, if you were to ask that to me, no, we're not going to go into it today. It would take too long. Yeah, there are things that can make me change my mind, whatever, about Bitcoin or about this or about that. There are things that could potentially really, really go wrong. So, you should always be asking that question. What would cause either if you're talking to someone in kind of a debate or just internally reflecting on your own? What would cause you to change your mind? Very cool. How can people get in touch with you and connect, Angelo? Uh, sure. I'm very active on social media. Again, we're family office or the channel family office, uh, which when you go to it, it should start to say the Angelo Robles podcast on YouTube. I also am at Family Office on Twitter. 
I'm active, pretty active on LinkedIn. You'll find me, whatever. I think I have used my middle initials. So Angela J. Robles on that. I also have a family office association page. Uh, and as you mentioned several times, and thank you on Instagram, I'm Angelo Robles Meta. So please follow me. Uh, my company, Family Office Association, and that is our URL, familyofficeassociation.com. If you're a significant investor or family office, there's value in connectivity to your peers, to best practices, to me. Uh, and I host events around the world. I'm off to the Milken Conference in a couple of days doing an event at a beautiful home in Beverly Hills, one of the nights there. That'll be a tremendous opportunity for investors to get together, to collaborate. And yes, we're a membership organization. You got to join, you got to be a part of it. That's all up online. You could find it. Uh, this has been great. I really enjoyed the interview and uh, your audience could reach out to me anytime. I'm happy to engage. Awesome, brother. Yeah, thank you very much. I could talk to you for hours and hours, and I'll definitely want to have you back to go a little more in depth in, in some of the things that we talked about. So thank you very much, my friend. Uh, it's been a pleasure, and I hope to speak to you again soon. Pleasure's all mine. Thank you so much for inviting me. I hope your audience enjoys it, and you asked great questions. I look forward to the next time as well. From the bottom, make no half-stepping. I'm the dog. I made it through so they don't ask questions. Long Beach, and it ain't no half reppin'. Once a dog, always a dog, so they don't ask questions. Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent. Almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.